This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Welcome to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm Matthew of CastingAcross.com, where I explore the quarry and culture of fly fishing. Before I get into the substance of the podcast, I want to talk about what that means. If you've been listening to the 190 plus episodes of this podcast, or you've been reading the website for the five or six years that it's been around, then you might know what I mean by quarry and culture. But today's podcast in particular deals with the synthesis or the 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 junction point of these two important topics. So when I talk about the quarry of fly fishing, I'm talking about the fish, because at the end of the day, that's kind of the target. Now, certainly, we don't go fly fishing simply to catch fish. There's more to it than that. As I wrote recently, there's many more efficient and effective ways to get fish at the end of a line or get them into your hand. So the fish matter, whether they be trout or as we'll talk about today, some other kinds of fish. That is an essential part of fly fishing. It's kind of what brings us together as fly fishers and a fly fishing community and culture. And then there's the culture side of it. And that is everything that goes into it. Uh, this, This wonderful thing that we do whether it be these long drives up into the mountains or these early mornings uh, out on the beach, whether it be picking out your favorite fly rod, whether it be talking with somebody in a fly shop, whether it be reading a book, listening to a podcast, whatever it might be, there's a lot of stuff that exists on the periphery of that quarry. And today, as I said, is going to be a conversation about kind of the junction of these two items, the quarry and the culture of fly fishing. Because fly fishing is not that typical uh, uh, lithograph or insurance commercial picture of fly fishing. At least it's not anymore. Uh, Fly fishing has, over the years, over the decades, garnered a reputation that's well-deserved in some circles of being elitist and being very narrow, of having a very tight orthodoxy. And what I mean by that is that it's tweed jacket, wicker creel, bamboo rod, dry fly, upstream Native trout. 
right? That is like the most narrow form of orthodoxy. Well, I don't subscribe to that. I love those things. Well, I don't think I ever have fished in tweed or with a wicker creel. I'm not opposed to fishing in tweed. If anyone has some nice tweed, I'll send you my measurements. But uh, that, that's certainly not fly fishing in, in total, and it isn't even kind of the majority of what fly fishing is. So that's not the culture. That's part of the culture, but it's not. that's not definitional of the culture. But when it comes to the quarry, there's a lot more than trout. Uh, a simple scroll on Instagram, and I know that's not a, a total uh, sample size, but if you go to the search feature and you put fly fishing in, you're going to see a lot of trout but you're also going to see a lot of other fish. You're going to see all the species of trout in just the United States. You're going to see all the, the major species of trout. You're going to see a smallmouth bass and largemouth bass and panfish, and you're going to see striped bass and bluefish and larger uh, big game species. You're going to see redfish and snook. You're going to see gar, and you're going to see catfish, and you're going to get into some fish that maybe your grandfather, if he was a, a fly fisher and he was in that tweed class, uh, he would have just kind of rolled his eyes at the idea of going out and pursuing a carp. Well, the fact of the matter is, I think carp have are a great, um, you know, uh, renovation story. They're a great pretty woman kind of um, arc in that there was nothing more kind of slimy and undesirable and less fly fishing e than common carp. And now there's entire books and magazines and podcasts and movements and assortments of flies and gear that is oriented towards catching big carp because they're fun and they fight hard. And with the catch and release ethos that has permeated the majority of the fly fishing culture, then who cares what the fish tastes like? Who cares what its plate value is? Because at the end of the day, the most important thing, are you having fun pursuing it? And is there some sort of reward once you hook into it? And carp is a great example. They've got soft, fleshy mouths. They're very spooky. And so hooking up with one is a challenge. But at the same time, once you do hook up into it, then you're going to have a blast, particularly on fly tackle. But we're not here to talk about carp today because actually I'm not a carp expert. And I'm not going to be an expert on the two species of fish that I'm going to be talking about today in this trash fish extravaganza. And uh, maybe this will start a series on uh, trash fish. But I don't believe they're trash fish. We're, I'm only calling them trash fish because that's what I grew up calling them. And that's what some people still refer to them as today. But I think it's something that is it's a name or it's a title of these kind of less desirable or non-traditional species that people who aim for them uh, actually use in a endearing manner. Because I can say for certain that the two species we're talking about today are fish that I really don't, you know, think that they've ruined my day when they're on the end of the line. And so uh, without further ado, let's talk about the first species. And the first species is the chain pickerel. So the chain pickerel is a species that you're probably very familiar with. Uh, it is a, a freshwater fish. It's part of the pike family. And so immediately that should give you really good feelings because when you think of pike, when you think of these giant prehistoric looking fish, whether they be pike or musky, there's just something wild about them. Their shape, their head, their mouth, their ferocity on which they not only strike, but fight. The fact that they have teeth really brings something to the party that a lot of other fish don't have. 
So the pickerel is one of the smaller species of this family, of the Esox family. And it could be known in no matter, you know, where you live across the, the, the eastern seaboard as, uh, as grass pike or jack or jackfish uh, or eastern pickerel. But uh, it is the chain pickerel is what it is called. And it's, it's easily identified and it is well named because it has this chain pattern along its sides. And it also makes it easily or relatively easily distinguishable from when you hook up with a large specimen of a chain pickerel versus when you hook up to a, a pike. You'd be able to tell the difference because the patterning on the side of the fish. The chain pickerel's distribution is up and down the East Coast. They are as found as far west as like the, the Midwest and even down into Texas, but they're all the way up in Canada, all around to Florida. Um, but in the real northern areas uh, up into like southern Canada and uh, particularly around the Great, Great Lakes, uh, they are considered invasive and they occupy the same niche as some of these other esox or these other pike species. And so uh, in worst case scenario, they could be pushing out uh, native species, even, even the northern pike, which is kind of crazy to think about. But of course, uh, a baby fish is a baby fish. A small fish is a, a small fry. And any fish that is occupying the same niche, whether it be for food source, for breeding spaces, uh, is going to uh, cause pressure uh, on other species. So again, uh, as is the case with any fish, even our beloved trout, if they're in the wrong place, if they're a non-native species, then they are ultimately problematic. But chain pickerel are a lot of fun. Now, one of their pejorative names is slime dart because they do stink. Yesterday, I actually caught a decent sized one and my friend was laughing because he said, you're going to smell like chain pickerel for the rest of the day. And it's true. They, they do have a little bit of funk going on, but really at the end of the day, it's no more than most other stinky fish that, that you're going to catch. Uh, you don't know how good we have it with trout when we catch trout. They don't really have a whole, whole lot of smell, but they are a lot of fun. And again, if you're not catching them to keep, then who cares? Uh, that being said, I have a good buddy who fishes down in South Carolina, catches them uh, down there, calls them jackfish. He says they're one of the best fish deep fried. Okay, but this is not a, a cooking uh, a podcast. This is uh, not even a recommendation for keeping or, or not keeping fish. But they put up a decent fight to the extent that I would say a chain pickerel of 12 inches is going to fight harder than a trout of 12 inches. You m might balk at that, but I'll, I'll certainly say this. A chain pickerel of 12 inches is going to fight harder than a stocked trout of 12 inches. Your run-of-the-mill, out-of-the-truck at 8 inches, has a season to grow trout, is not going to fight as hard as a pickerel. And then you get up to that 20-inch mark, and you know, they fight stinking hard and they're pretty plentiful. Now a 20 inch bass is going to pull pretty hard, but I've had some 20 inch pickerel where I think, what, what do I have on the end of this line? Uh, and, and especially when they are in a location where they are well-fed, uh, where they are proportionate, uh, you, you will find places where they're overpopulated, where the food sources are out of whack and the, it's just not a really good ecosystem where their heads get really big and then they get really, really skinny. Those don't fight super hard. But when they have those kind of traditional pike-like proportions, then they're going to fight really hard. They've got a nice, strong set of shoulders on them and they have a big, thick tail that they can really move a lot of water. And that is not only going to translate into their ability to fight, but it's also going to turn into some spectacular takes. Um, you think about the traditional like Northwoods pike fishing, uh, pulling 
big lures or for our purposes, big flies just under the surface under the water or over the top water, whether it be through lily pads or open water, you know, over some sort of um, uh, underwater structure. And you see these these big wakes coming behind them and you watch this big pike come up and, and destroy the fly or the lure. Chain pickerel are going to do the same thing, especially big, aggressive, angry chain pickerel. They're going to strike just like that. And it's a lot of fun. It's, it's just a thrill to see that happen. So what do I like to use for flies? Everything. Any kind of streamer is going to work. And I actually really like using a, a, a streamer that has a extended body with a hook that is further back. Um, and the reason is not because they're not going to take the head of this fly, but I do like the idea of hooking them in the corner of their mouth and not so much um, on their, their, their lips. I have found that I have frayed more line when that lure is kind of in the front of its mouth, either in the top or the bottom, or kind of on the, on its tongue, for lack of a better term. They actually have, have um, uh, teeth on the top of their mouth, the roof of their mouth. So if I have an extended body hook, or I don't do this a lot, particularly for for warm water fish that aren't um, bass with uh, you know with with um, weedless bugs that I've thrown for for largemouth bass, but I have had success with articulated streamers, not because you need that extra motion, but because it does kind of move that hook back. And generally speaking, those those hook shanks and the hooks that you use to tie those flies are going to have a wider gap, which for any fish that is striking hard and, and moving quickly, you're going to increase your odds for a good solid hookup. So that I've, I found more success with, with patterns like that, and they can be anything. They can be a clouser, they can be a woolly bugger, they can be a deceiver. I generally like flies that are going to displace a little bit more water. So something like a deceiver is going to be better than a clouser. And even some of those traditional kind of largemouth bass flies or smallmouth bass flies that might have a little bit of a, a, a body to them, whether it be with dubbing, uh, you know, probably synthetic dubbing, or even some deer hair are going to work really well because they're going to displace a lot of that water and they're going to get those fish looking up and, and eliciting that predatory instinct. So cast it. And I mean, I've found success in retrieving them quickly. I've found success in retrieving them slowly. But uh, once you get that that bump, then uh, keep stripping. That that I've, I've found that just like a lot of other toothy fish, they're going to stay on the hunt after they've had a little bit of taste and uh, they've missed out on something. They're not going to turn tail and run like a small little trout. They're going to be aggressive and they're not going to want to miss out on anything. And they will chase it right up to the boat, just like you see with, with pike. And I think that's a, a fun way to fish for them is by a canoe. A canoe on a lily pad covered pond uh, in New England, it, you're going to have a lot of fun and your kids are going to have a lot of fun fishing for chain pickerel. My boys absolutely love it because they do put a big fight and they look like little dragons. I mean, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal thing. So chain pickerel, a lot of love for them. Uh, they're fun. I have, I don't think I've ever eaten one, but, uh, they're certainly worth eating if you have a water body that, uh, uh, isn't polluted. And I think some of these ponds that I fish that are further up in, in New Hampshire and in Maine, where I catch them, where they are a little bit disproportionate, I probably should make a point to start keeping them and equalizing that ecosystem. Not like I'm going to have some grand effect on a pond's population, but, uh, I don't feel bad about it when they are uh, a little bit out of whack. So that's the first species, chain pickerel. Second species, another species that I've written about and I've talked about because it's a fantastic little fish and it's a native fish and it's the fall fish. Now the fall fish is the largest minnow species in eastern North America. Um, they're a minnow 
and they get they get big. Now, typically, you're going to find them in that like six inch range, but I've caught them 14 inches, 16 inches. Uh, I had a, a buddy whose kid caught one at a giant lake uh, up here in New England that was probably a 16 incher um, and just fat, big bodied fish. And uh, they're cool looking. I mean, they got, they're big and scaly and they've got kind of a, a blunted head. They're very u- unique. Um, they're, they're exactly what you'd think a minnow would look like if a minnow kind of grew up and, and hit puberty. Um, they get all warty on their noses when it's uh, breeding time. They get really funky looking. But they occupy most of the same streams that your trout are going to occupy. But they're also going to live in warm water streams. They're incredibly uh, diversely uh, ecologically found fish. And they are kind of cool to watch. If you've ever watched them do their work, uh, they, they're really deliberate in the way that they build their nests and the way that they spawn. Really cool fish. Why do I like fall fish? I like fall fish because, one, they're native fish. So they're cool. They're, they're supposed to be where they're supposed to be, uh, where they are. And they, are, they belong in a lot of the streams on the East Coast more than smallmouth bass do certainly than something like brown trout does. Now that doesn't mean that I want to kill all the brown trout and replace them with fall fish. But when you catch one, you know, and you are an advocate for conservation and you're an advocate for uh, native fish, then that fall fish is a great thing to see. Um, and they are a good food source for the trout when they're juveniles. They are a good predator fish that exists in these streams when they are larger. And like I was talking about with pickerel and, and their proportions get out of whack, uh, when a stream is healthy, they're going to have a healthy population of trout and a healthy population of fall fish. They exist side by side, but they occupy different niches. Um, why are they called fowlfish, by the way? Uh, lore has it, and I've read this a number of places, that you people would find them congregated at the base of falls, um, the base of plunge pools. And that's true. You'll find them down there. You'll catch them. You, know, you, you think that, oh, man, this is a perfect plunge pool. This is a great spot. There's going to be a big trout hanging out at the bottom of this waterfall. And you cast a stream in there, and you get a big hit, and you think, oh, this is nice. This thing's not jumping. It's a big, thick-bodied fish. You see it flashing around in there like, oh, man, it's golden. It's like this big, mature brook trout, or maybe it's a big brown trout down there. And then you get it close to you, and it, its big, lippy mouth opens up, and you realize, oh, it's a fall fish. But that is kind of going back to that uh, quarry and culture thing I was talking about earlier. If you had a lot of fun fighting that fish, then don't balk at it. Don't don't fuss about it. Throw it back and keep fishing. Uh, you, you don't have to say, this fall fish ruined my day. And kind of like I mentioned with chain pickerel, I think a 12-inch fall fish is going to fight harder than a stocked 12-inch trout. I'm not going to say a fall fish is better than a 12-inch native trout. I'm not going to say a fall fish is better than a, a 12-inch trout that was stream bred. But compared to a doughy, you know, raceway rainbow trout that doesn't have a lot of color on it, a, trout, a fall fish is going to fight better and it's supposed to be there. I mean, there's a lot of, of ins and outs when when we talk about spe- species and where they're supposed to be and their their sporting value and all that sort of stuff. But fallfish, they they are supposed to be there and they put up a, a good little fight. How do you fish for fallfish? Well, here's the thing. I don't think I can say that I've ever purposely fished for fallfish. They've always been bycatch. Um, you see something rising and you cast a dry fly to it and it, the thing rises and you catch it and you realize, oh, that's not a trout, it's fallfish. Uh, you're stripping a streamer through a deep pool, and you get a strike, you pull it in, you realize, oh, that's not a trout, it's a fallfish. Uh, you're pulling a popper across uh, a, a some riffles on a little stream, and you think, oh, 
I got a smallmouth bass to reel it in. Nope, it's a fallfish. And they're just all over the place and they're going to hit and eat everything. I've caught them on midges. I've caught them on streamers. I've caught them on poppers. I've caught them on dry flies. You name it, they're going to eat it uh, because they are predatory fish. So there are people that fish for fall fish with a purpose. And I actually wrote an article recently simply highlighting their value as a sporting fish for some people because uh, the Virginia state record was broken sometime in the early part of this year. And so there's an article on that on castingacross.com and why we should celebrate the guy that's fishing for these fall fish and how big these fall fish are getting because it is the largest member of the minnow species. And this is the largest example of it that was caught in the Commonwealth of, of Virginia, which is uh, pretty close to the, uh, the, the world record or the United States record. So fall fish, not in the same category as chain pickerel in the sense that I'm not pursuing them, but when I find them, they put a smile on my face. And I will say that for both of these species, there's a lot that we can learn from them in the sense that the people that came before us, whether it be early colonists, our grand, great-grandparents, uh, and, and even, and I would say even more, more pointedly, Native Americans uh, that were catching these fish and that, that had a totally different relationship with them because they were quarry for them, right? Like we were talking about earlier, but their culture, their angling culture had a totally different relationship with fish than we have today. And so it's just really cool to understand and see kind of their, their value, how they cooked them, uh, how they, they saw them as part of the ecosystem. Definitely something to read about. And there's a lot of information on there. I mean, there's a lot of more, a lot more information about fall fish uh, in colonial America than brown trout in colonial America for, for very good reason, right? Uh, secondly, one of the reasons I think these fish species are great is because it, it, they maintain some of that wonder, that uh, idea that you, you probably don't have much anymore if you are someone who fishes a lot, where you know, I'm going to try to catch brown trout. I know I'm going to try to catch largemouth bass. But when you were a kid, you just know you're trying to catch a fish and you have no clue what's coming up. Um, I still feel that way when I fish in some streams. I, I still feel that way when I fish in the ocean. Like, what am I going to catch? I know I'm probably going to catch a striper, but who knows what's going to chase my fly on any given day. And fish species like chain pickerel and fallfish, even in streams that have lots of them, they are part of a grab bag, uh, just a, a myriad of species that you you might catch. You might not catch them on some days, but you, you might catch them. And in, in, in you don't know what that fish is until you see it jump or you see it close to the boat. And there's a lot of fun in that. And so those fish add to it. What do you think about chain pickerel? What do you think about fallfish? Do you hate them? Do you not like the way they make your hands smell? Do you not like the fact that they're getting in the way of your 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 brown trout, which are supposed to be in these rivers? Well, your brown trout aren't supposed to be in these rivers. I love brown trout. I'm looking at two pictures of brown trout on my wall right now. But these fish actually have more of a right to be there than brown trout do. And so we need to kind of appreciate that and we need to work them into our culture and work them into our quarry as well. This week on castingacross.com, the first article is called The Fly Fishing Library You Didn't Know You Had. Actually, it's The Fishing Library You Didn't Know You Had. Made the title shorter so it looked better on the internet. But this is me talking about and advocating getting your library card and getting that barcode number off the back of it. Well, I guess it's not a barcode number, the number on the barcode and plugging that into uh, a service called Hoopla. And Hoopla and Libby, and there's a couple other ones, they are services that get you ebooks and audiobooks and my library gives me five a month and there is a lot on there uh, a lot of great fly fishing books uh, are available on there pretty much anything popular you're going to be able to find on there some things aren't on there i would say i probably found maybe three out of the four books i was looking for uh, as i looked for about a dozen or 20 titles but i mean big name books 
John Gearock, Tom Rosenbauer, uh, Barry and Kathy Beck, uh, Landon Mayer. A lot of these people have their published books that are on there because the publisher has a, a deal with Libby and libraries and all things like that. But this is a great way, if you, whether it be on your phone or whether it be in your tablet, to always have a fly fishing book at the ready. Or if you listen to audiobooks, then you know, you're know saving a couple of bucks from getting them from Audible or from another um, uh, service. You get them for free. So uh, reading books on devices is not my favorite thing. I actually really am not a huge fan of it, uh, but that's because I really only use my little iPhone. But if you had a tablet or you had a Kindle or something like that, then those books are a great free option and you can always have something at the ready. I do always have a book going on my phone in case I get stuck somewhere instead of scrolling through social media, which is by and large a waste of time, I can uh, read a book. And so I use Hoopla. You can check out links for that and some of the books that I found with a quick cursory search over at the fishing library you didn't know you had. Wednesday's article was called Coffee for Fly Fishing. Coffee for Fly Fishing. And this is a reworked article from um, six years ago uh, where I tightened it up. I increased the uh, punch of the language and decrease the volume of the language. But it's kind of a fun, lighthearted article that explores the joy, the culture that is fly fishing and how coffee is an essential part of that. So give it a read. Uh, if you don't drink coffee, I'm not sure what to tell you. I really don't understand. I, I, I consider myself a very open-minded person. I just don't have a capacity to wrap my mind around not drinking coffee, especially if you're waking up as early as you need to wake up to fish well, and you're fishing in the wintertime, and, and you need the energy, and I just, I can't get it. But hey, to each his or her own, right? This week's recommendation is actually going to come on the heels of this last article, uh, because I'm looking at my coffee mug, and the particular Yeti mug that I possess at present in front of me has a sticker on it from Nate Carnes of Remedy Provisions, and it is one of my favorite fishing related images that's ever been produced. And it is this Appalachian brook trout. And he's got a corn cob pipe and he's got a hat with feather in it. And he's carrying a, a jug of, of moonshine. It's an awesome little sticker. And uh, Remedy Provisions has countless designs. There's a Texas bass version. Uh, there's these flags of different fish species and different uh, game birds. They're just really cool stickers. So if you want to festoon your coffee mug or your tea mug, if you're that kind of person, or your water bottle, or the back of your van, or whatever it is, then definitely check out the stickers from Remedy Provisions. Uh, really cool designs. I will put a link to Remedy Provisions so you can check out the stickers and also the hats and some of the other gear that, that they make. Um, I'll put a link to Remedy Provisions in the show notes of this page on, on castingacross.com, and you can definitely check it out. Uh, just again, Cool designs, different, out of the box, not the same stuff, you know, not some sort of uh, a fish with a, uh, a state flag, you know, plastered into it or some, some you know, cute pop culture reference. Just unique, cool stuff that uh, is, some of it's subtle, some of it's just fun, and it's definitely the kind of thing that uh, I'm happy to have on my cooler and my water bottle and uh, all over the place. Thanks for listening to the Casting Across Fly Fishing Podcast. Please subscribe to your favorite podcast app and then rate the podcast on iTunes. Then head over to castingacross.com for three posts a week on the people, places, and things that go into the pursuit of fish. On 
Mondays. Head offshore with Captain Scott Walker and Steve Roger for breathtaking deep sea adventures. Coming to me, coming to me, coming to me. Double. He's jumping, he's jumping, he's jumping. Oh! oh. Look at that Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue. Brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern. Tell a few fish stories along the way. On Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.